Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode, we highlight the ideas around rethinking the way cities are being built. We discuss the roles of planning, design, technology, and other fields that contribute to improving the urban experience. On this episode, we're speaking with John Hartman, owner of Wonderworks Design Studio in Denver, Colorado. It's kind of beautiful to see how somebody, you know, in Japan interacts with design in a totally different way. For the last eight years, John's been working on public projects that leverage design, graphics, typography, art placements, and various finishes that influence how people interact with a space. Let's jump right into the conversation. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Chris Arnold. And today we're excited to be speaking with John Hartman, owner at Wonderworks Design Studio based in Denver, Colorado. Since 2010, he's been working on public projects that leverage design, graphics, typography, art placements, and various finishes that really change how people interact with the space. So we can't wait to dive in. John, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. So I want to start out with a little bit around your history. Tell us a little bit about kind of where you come from and what your background is and sort of how you found your way to starting your design studio. So I kind of fell into design somewhat by accident. I'd always been interested in art and aesthetics really through kind of the lens of action sports uh, at an early age, ski graphics, skateboard graphics. It always kind of really, you know, an early introduction to art for kids that don't otherwise have a lot of exposure to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went to university, CU, Denver, um, and my focus is really on uh, cultural anthropology and Middle Eastern studies, which is something I was passionate about at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, but kind of throughout college, I had done a little bit of side design work, sweatshirts, graphics for local shops, stuff like that to kind of help make ends meet. And then uh, after college, I was heavily considering going somewhere on the East Coast, uh, studying a master's program, doing cultural anthropology, but kind of with eyes on how people interact with brand. And then uh, yeah. in, the, in the interim, I was kind of doing some design to make ends meet and my wife at the time was a copywriter with uh, eyes to design and web, and she had started doing some freelance also where I started piggybacking on those projects. And uh, later that year, she went back to an agency, and some of the things that she had started and we had been working on kind of started to blossom into bigger, mm. bigger projects, a little bit more fully conceptual ideas and started to get kind of this germ of an idea in my head that there was kind of a niche in the market to do something a bit different. At the time I was working for Vans and it was very corporate and I was not in love with the situation and just kind of decided to jump and then slowly over the last eight years have kind of carved out a niche and kind of expanded the uh, portfolio of what we do and really uh, tried to, to fully flesh out something that we think is pretty conceptual as far as a design studio in the market. Mm. And and knowing a little bit about your history and kind of your, obviously you like to travel, you and, your, you and your wife love to travel, and I imagine that travel has been something that is inspiring and has been for quite some time. Do you feel like the travel piece is something that you bring back to your design work? And if so, how does that kind of inspire these these projects and these places? Yeah, I think... Travel and looking outwardly is uh, incredibly important to the design process. I think that there's a lot of different facets 
to design how people interact with aesthetics in different places in the world. I was not really fortunate enough growing up to have traveled very much, so I've been really trying to make up for it in my adult life. My wife kind of had traveled throughout her life, and as we met, started to pull me along on these trips. I had always kind of had a romanticized dream of seeing the world, sure. but actually getting to go, it's addicting. And it's kind of beautiful to see how somebody, you know, in Japan interacts with design and kind of sees detailing and the use of materials in a totally different way than somebody in New York or LA. Yeah. And then, you know, to go to one of my other favorite places uh, out to Scandinavia, to Copenhagen or Oslo, to see kind of this almost entirely different cultural grounding for the care for materials and detailing but to see kind of these design traits reemerge in different cultures yeah and and just to to see ideas and be exposed to various people it's it's important i think that everybody kind of can have a pretty good outward view because of the internet in this day and age but i think that actually going places and interacting with people gives you a much stronger footing for how people view brand and design and what makes a good space, what makes a good space from one culture to another and, and where we do have shared ground. Yeah. What, what strikes me about the work that you do is, and we hear this all the time nowadays with regards to brands and companies wanting to be authentic. And it's kind of funny that, you know, our company is called in, in, in one way or another authentic form and function, um, which is now such a buzzword, but so many brands want to be authentic and real and, and they want their visitors to walk in and, and feel the space like they're in Japan, like they're in a different country, depending on what the, the motif is of the project. And what strikes me about your work is that storytelling is such a huge part of the work that you do at a very baseline level from the very start all the way through to the finishes of a project. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that kind of story plays out in the work that you do and how you approach those projects? And if you have a project in mind that you want to kind of walk us through, like how that, how does that all come together? Well, I think research is key. I think that going into projects with an idea in mind, and we're, we're fairly selective as far as what we go into. I think a lot of companies kind of will work on whatever will pay them. And for me, I feel like unless I have a pretty strong uh, emotive connection to the project at the onset, it's it's harder to get to the end point in a really fully conceived way. And I think that, you know, working on projects that you you feel deeply and that you understand in, mm -hmm. you know, a, a more than a financial sense really help you come out of those initial meetings with a picture in your head of what the goal is and what, you know, societally you can do here yeah. to uh, make something new in a market. So it always kind of has to start with this, this deep feeling of compatibility. And I think that really helps the storytelling. From there, we really like to get nitty gritty and get into research and see what else is similar that exists in the world. Is there anything else, you know, at any point in time that is referential to this? What were the successes and failures of that? And then doing things that, you know, insofar as you were talking about authenticity, people in this day and age want to do things that are very thematic. 
there's a lot of concepts out there. And so the more heavily you can apply thematics to mm -hmm. something, the more unique a lot of people perceive it to be. But I think that sometimes by doing that, you're avoiding authenticity. Right. And I think that with kind of thoughtful application of design, you can have people feel the way that you want them to feel right. and associate emotions as people would associate emotions with those thematics without being over the top. And, and one might say that this term concepts, I mean, we hear that so much in the industry, is almost like you're just stamping out another concept without really thinking it through, especially companies or brands that just want to get something out to the public. They think, you know, concept A and concept B are really going to do well in a market. And so they copy some other quote unquote concept without really doing any of their research behind what that concept actually means. Oh, it's a, it's a problem that's endemic that you'll see one great success in a market or, or nationally at this point, And then you'll see, uh, tons of imitators that have not necessarily put in the forethought and create something that is, you know, maybe a moneymaker, it may be financially successful, but it yeah. may be a failure of design. And I think that when you think about these things, you know, if you want to make something that's Western, you don't need to, you know, have shot up signs on the wall and, you know, <laughs> uh, cowboy boots everywhere. Grungy type faces everywhere. It, exactly. Yeah. I think that you can do lots of small things with lighting, with use of textiles and materials, with typography, with, you know, all of these things and use new materials in unique ways, but still give people that deep kind of subconscious connection to the messaging you're trying to do. And to me, that I think is authenticity. You want somebody to feel like the project is of a place mm -hmm. and of a time mm -hmm. while still having enduring natures to it. Yeah. And when you do something that is intentionally, as a man who loves mid-century design, to do, you know, the TWA terminal at JFK now would be incredibly inauthentic. But to use right. some of these you know, curvatures and some of these tones and, you know, some materials that evoke that era, mm -hmm. you can capture a little bit of that magic without doing something that is is fake. Right. Which you see a lot. Yeah. So let's set the stage. We're, right now we're kind of on campus, on the taxi campus. We mm -hmm. call it on-site at the taxi campus. You know, you're, you and your company have worked quite a bit in this neighborhood, the the Rhino I, I River live here North and I work here. River so North Denver. Sometimes I feel like I never leave. You know, we we've both lived here now for quite a while and we've seen the area change. Denver's changed so much in the last handful of years, let alone the last 10 years. Now, I'd love to hear you talk about some of the projects you've launched recently and maybe pick one or two that you feel like leverage design and the design thinking and the storytelling aspect really well that you're proud of. I mean, there's so many that we could choose from in this area alone. What stands out to you right now? We're, we are heavily leveraged in this zone, but um, yeah, I guess you gotta, gotta love, love home first Absolutely. before you love other places. Yeah, so we were involved in the launch of three pretty major projects in this area with kind of a lot of lucky enough to work with a lot of kind of the sub brands and call them home. And, you know, we were, we were lucky to get 
uh, working with a development group early called Zeppelin Development that really has kind of some really unique ideas and, you know, is a little bit more socially conscious and helps to really speak to a little bit more humanistic goals as a whole. And they generally pair with the architecture group, Dina Architects, who are uh, good friends of ours. They definitely create these kind of incredible building forms that create, you know, forms for human interaction, mm -hmm. really value light and open space. And, and it's been, you know, kind of these beautiful palettes to work with. One of the projects we just launched, which generally I, and I think a lot of people find commercial buildings and office buildings pretty unsexy, yeah. uh, is the flight building over here on the taxi campus. It's on the uh, north side. It's a new build. Then it houses BOA Technologies, World Headquarters, and but the part that we worked heavily on was above that are these 40 kind of plug-and-play spec suites. Yeah. And they are, uh, I guess you would consider them kind of a uh, V2.0 co-working space. So as people grow out of individual desks and are starting to raise capital or their company's starting to get legs, they look to move to maybe a their first small office where they can have, you know, conference room, few desks, things like that. Yeah. And a, a real barrier to entry, I talk with a lot of my friends in the tech world, is kind of they don't know where to start. They know, you know, their industry super well, but kind of space creation, furnishing of a space, and some of the finishes that go into that really kind of elude them. Right. And it's it's a lot of stress to those companies. And so much of the, the we're talking about tech world a little bit right now, but so much of the startup and tech, tech startup world is, you know, the assumption is I need to go find an incubator or I need to go to a co-working space where maybe you're just kind of in a giant, what what is essentially a giant conference room or a giant fishbowl. And it sounds like the concept here is, you know, a step between you're in a co-working space with a million other people and you're spending a boatload of money on a private office space, a whole floor of a building or something like that. Yeah. So... I mean, the building itself is very unique insofar as it's targeted to be lead platinum, uh, which is great. It's got a huge green roof, leverages solar, and kind of all of these spec suites live on top of a larger footprint that contains kind of all of these solar mm -hmm. garage doors to open patios and all of that, but you're already a few stories up. So it's a very kind of unique condition that you're in this elevated park and... When targeting this idea of, you know, sustainability, not just in the building, but also in design and in the turnover of tenants and that there are far more four to six person companies than there are 80 person companies. Absolutely. And creating yeah. spaces that speak to that kind of mid-sized company that's really oftentimes left out mm -hmm. in the cold. So we started contracting the developer and the architect pretty early and started working on the idea for these turnkey suites. We uh, reached out to some of our friends out in London, OpenDesk, and worked with them to create their first sit-to-stand powered desk Yeah, because we thought obviously the ergonomics of that were very important, but creating kind of a full custom furniture package for each space that was as flexible as possible, as complete as possible, while still allowing brands to express their identity onto that. Mm. The great thing with working with OpenDesk was that we were able to go out to London, work on the designs with a really high-level, intuitive 
European design studio. And then they were able to have all of the furniture made two blocks from here at House Fish through CNC plans that they generated there was locally made with locally sourced materials. There was no shipping. Wow. And really was able to leverage this open maker's model to do something that was a high level of design integrity with a high level of sustainability. Yeah. With the rest fit, we thought that kind of creating this unique object and these kind of unique suite opportunities was a nice opportunity to pair it with some unique typography. So we created a custom typeface for flight called flight, which is kind of applied thoughtfully throughout. It's yeah. a little bit of a kind of an italicized forward leaning, forward thinking face. And we really uh, on that project worked, you know, top to bottom with all of the you know, design aesthetics, furnishing, materials, color palette through the building. And it's great to kind of create something that is an otherwise pretty cold space kind yeah. of office industrial and, space and yeah. and to and to have people walk into an office on day one and feel like it's already a little bit of on its way mm-hmm. to home and you're really just applying your kind of brand's character onto a really strong initial palette so that's that's been a really fun project to kind of try and turn some of this office space thinking a little bit on its head yeah what i notice a lot about your work is that there's a curated aspect to everything. You know, it's it's custom, it's curated, and it does seem like it always has a tie back to a certain piece of cultural significance. And what I'm thinking of now is the project called the Source Hotel and Market Hall that you and your team have worked diligently on for it's been, for years. It's been a long project, but it is uh, finally coming to fruition. It's finally coming to fruition. And if it doesn't kill us between now and then. Yeah. And and I think, you know, as it comes together, I mean, you look at the, the ph- photography, you look at the finishes, you see how it's all coming together in, in reality. And there's an immediate cultural recognition of a place other than Denver, Colorado. Can you talk about kind of that threshold as you walk in, you know, making that place feel like somewhere else it's transporting the visitor. Yeah, I think there is a certain degree of hoping for the best in people and that people appreciate design. And, you know, in working with Dina Architects, Stephen Dina, the primary, is, you know, a very thoughtful man when it comes to architecture. And we've had many deep conversations about that there are certain things that are innately appreciated in human nature and there's light, there's space, there's airiness, mm-hmm. and some of those things really never go out of style. The project was unique in that it was much more prolonged than it was initially spec'd for, so it, it almost allowed everybody to to research and then re-research and then re-research again the right. process, which Triple at checked. times at times was painful, but uh, at at the end it was an incredible learning process. The project really did not have a traditional interior design process like most hotels do. Um, mm-hmm. We were able to work with uh, Karen Haley a little bit to uh, work with us on some of the hospitality grading and procurement, helping to fill some of the uh, you know technical gaps for what you know there are goals of things that you don't want them to fall apart yeah. in a uh, public yeah. space. But as far as the idea, it, it really you know was able to be discussed at an early level and derived from, you know, some early architectural principles and just design principles 
over the three years that this went on, I, me and my wife were probably able to go to, you know, 15, 16 countries, stay at 30, 40 hotels, yeah. and just really see what was unique and what was not unique. And something, you know, we kind of kept coming up against was that hotels as we view them now are, are somewhat of a new concept. To get outside of that was not actually that much of a sidestep. Mm. So we looked first at the materials that were being used in the building, and then we looked at, you know, climactically, where is Colorado? What are these spaces valuing? And so, you know, for me, I kind of immediately looked, once again, as many designers do, um, to Scandinavia because they do have a very seasonally varied climate. And, you know, what are materials that feel warm in winter and cool in summer? What are, you know, enduring design elements that mm -hmm. work in similar climactic zones? Right. And so, you know, we built a lot of our palette around that. We were also lucky to have worked in on the initial source foundry. And so we had been kind of creating and curating a brand, typography, illustration, iconographic elements for a few years before that. So the uh, graphic design element of the brand was almost a little bit of a foregone conclusion. The source to kind of back up a moment is this yeah. space that really focuses on maker's culture and uh, pushing kind of active production to the forefront. The butcher cuts up the meat right in the window. The coffee place roasts the coffee right in the front. Mm -hmm. Baker bakes the bread that's served on the campus there. And so it really kind of has this idea of active production. So we wanted this brand that kind of harked back to the area's kind of industrial utilitarian nature and say, this is a place where we're making things again. So we wanted to play with ideas of utilitarianism and just really like kind of brutal, iconic mm -hmm. typography and iconography, but to do some playful things with it. We paired a really unnatural, striking source blue yeah. with all of these really natural materials. It kind of excites all of the portals between spaces, all of the handrails, all of the signage, and really helps you view this in a really quick way. Um, in the initial source building, we did kind of lenticular graphics on all of the storefronts, so you actually have to walk and like kind of circulate the space to fully be able to read the graphics from different angles and mm -hmm. kind of begs you to walk through the space. So, you know, we kind of had this existing palette and brand and it was how to kind of thoughtfully apply that over to the hotel. And, and for listeners who, who aren't familiar with Denver or River North, the Rhino neighborhood, you know, if you do get a chance to visit Denver, definitely come on by the Source and the Source Hotel because, you know, what, in my opinion, what's so interesting about the space is that, as, as John, you kind of alluded to there, the phase one, we'll call it, of the Source and the Source Hotel was kind of just the Source. It Dude. was a renovation of an old industrial building. It was a foundry from the 1880s. Yeah, that became this kind of revitalized space for makers, for makers to, like you said, cut the meat, pour the coffee. And, and then phase two now is the hotel. And the hotel sits just next to and adjoins uh, the Source in, in kind of a unique way. And as you approach the complex, you see the you see how the design 
is very striking when it comes to Denver and you see the significance of the, of the place. One of the biggest things is you see the old building and then you see the new building and, and kind of talk about how, how that plays, you know, how does that kind of, what's the intention of the source brand being able to reside in the old foundry building as well as the new hotel building? Well, so I think it's funny because they value a lot of the same things, even though they were built, you know, a century and a half apart. So the initial foundry building, I mean, you really don't get better than that. It's 40-foot vaulted roofs, this old brick building, and it's almost church-like in nature. But the finishes that were applied in there were very intentionally modern. Everybody avoided doing anything that was rustic because doing something that's old in an old space is just inauthentic. You you want there to be the the juxtaposition of old and new. Well, because then you go back to the Western typefaces and the... Exactly, you know, and you've got old mining equipment in yeah. there and... Suddenly you got a episode of Westworld yes, exactly. going on. I have, yeah. I have a quick tangent about it. I have a full <laughs> hatred of things that are artificially aged. I think that the aging and patinaing of objects and design and physical structures is part of what makes them beautiful. So when you start on day one with artificially aged Full elements, age. yeah, it, it kills me. You're literally, you're just, I, I just wake up in a cold sweat in the middle yeah. of the night. Yeah. If you have a logo that uh, is going on a web page, <laughs> don't apply some sort of distress yeah. to it because it's on the internet yes. and it, it is not distressed. Yeah. Nothing will ever distress it. Uh-huh. So that is by... That's a perfectly okay tangent. Yeah. I appreciate that. But um, going back to it, so the, the both of the market halls, so there is the market hall one, which is the original foundry, and there is market hall two, which is the new build, which has a uh, five-story hotel tower coming up from that, and then a uh, rooftop beer garden and pool structure. So that concept is, you know, to some degree it's counterpoint, but it values the same things of large format space, light, and then was able to kind of value the things that you can do with new construction techniques. So we were able to kind of have larger openings and kind of make the building have a lot more porosity to it, which is, is great, but it was kind of those same moves that we were applying to the source. And so, you know, these things are you know, in some way, you know, you have a very kind of modernist, brutalist expression with this very, you know, like brick foundry building from the 1800s that kind of is is innately Western in its structure. But if you strip it down to kind of its core principles, you, you have these two things that are trying to achieve the same goals. And it's kind of between those and kind of the application of this overlay of like a similar material and graphics palette of, of furnishing palette that really ties these two ideas and makes this whole project cogent. And I think that one thing that's really beautiful about it is you know that you are experiencing a single brand, whether you are up on the rooftop on the eighth story or you are in you know this old market hall or you are in mm-hmm. this restaurant or you're in that retail store, you, you kind of have this very unique explorative experience and and people can really come and spend the day or multiple days and kind of 
discover this brand. Right. But you all know that you're existing within this brand. And I think that, you know, all of that just speaks to cohesion of design thought, application of materials, colors, and uh, kind of just design theory across these spaces. Yeah, it, it's definitely a little bit more of that experience design when you walk in and you, there's a tangible difference between walking into a concept, you know, and walking into a really thoroughly thought out space that has all sorts of design considerations considered, the, fleshed out, and executed. The, the devil is in the details, to be mm-hmm. certain. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people say that, but whether guests, the general public, or you know, other, other designers, other people in the creative class, notice it consciously or subconsciously, because I think there is kind of a, a striking difference between kind of who notices what types of things in what way. People notice. Everybody notices, and so I or think they that feel it at least. Exactly. They, don't notice it. they may not. They may not notice it. You know, like in a very. You know, they may not be like, able to point it out and say like, this feels off feels because off. of this distressed font that doesn't make sense in space. <laughs> Again, we're we're just brutalizing the distressed that. fonts. If you're listening to this yeah. and are making a distressed font, yeah. close your computer yeah. and do not uh, save. And you're done. You're yep. done here. Start over. You want people to feel right in the space. And, you know, we kind of had mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of it is that people sometimes can't put their finger on what feels right. They also sometimes can't put their finger on what feels wrong. And I think that's really the job of the designer to fully think through that. And I think that in a lot of ways, these things aren't come to you don't come to them in the first iteration or sometimes the second iteration. Uh, I mean, successful design is a, is a series of failure, and sometimes you'll do a project that does make people feel the wrong way, but it's only a failure if you stop there and don't dig into why people are responding to this design in the wrong way and yeah. not learning from that for a future project. So I'm kind of... Let's pivot from that statement and talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the lack of design forethought and execution in in other projects in Denver and in other major cities across the country. Oh, here's where it gets raw. Here's where it gets raw (laughs) because truthfully, you know, that's a challenge and you have reporters, you have blogs that concerned citizens start that talk about, you know, bashing some of the architectural Decision making, or what like cities? Shout out to to Brad and Denver Fugly, right there. Perhaps, perhaps yeah. you know that's that's one of those things where there there can be a lot of great design around us, and there can be a lot of terrible design around us, and that's kind of a a huge ongoing challenge. So, with that in mind, you know how do you how do you kind of battle that demon of I'm doing this one good thing for perhaps five terrible things or ugly things or unthoughtful things that are coming out? I think it's hard. At times it's depressing, but you kind of always have to remember that we are in America and we are in the middle of America. Mm -hmm. And design and aesthetics are not necessarily endemic in our culture from birth as they are in other places in the world. And so it's easy to look at some other countries or other cities and say, you know, look look at how beautiful the design is because I think people are, are taught to value a higher level of craftsmanship and of detail and, and to have a certain degree of, of pride in their work. America is very capitalistic and I think that uh, that 
brings us a preponderance of cheap material, quick build, stick construction. And that's really what we're seeing repeat itself throughout kind of some of the main corridors of Denver is we have this huge explosion of population density. And it's because Denver is a, you know, Denver and Colorado are a beautiful place. There's yeah, a lot of opportunity of here. Yeah. It's it's a place where, you know, since the pioneer days, people have come to come by choice to remake themselves. Right. Denver. Head out west. Denver is still not an easy place to get to. It's not on the coast. It's not central. It's in the middle of the country. Yeah. And people, you know, as with 100 years ago, that are coming here, they're coming here by choice. Mm-hmm. And so as people choose to come here, they are not being provided choice to value design without high levels of currency. There, there are some good projects going up. I think Trace Birds is building some beautiful projects, but good design costs money in this current moment, in this current market. Yeah. And I think that there is a certain capitalistic idea in America at large that kind of design needs to be monetized and that you know, what we're seeing a lot right now is the warehousing of people without the thought for design. Right. And, you know, a simple increase of 3%, 5% of the budget and a little bit more thoughtful research of materials could really be transforming a lot of these buildings to be something mm-hmm. a little more special and a little more enduring. And we could literally be talking about 10 fewer units in order to accommodate an atrium or a nice park that residents in a new development could enjoy. Different types of skin, application of, you know, green technologies to Mm -hmm. the building, and sometimes just as simple as color theory. Mm -hmm. I mean, paint is cheap, but to, you know, not thoughtfully apply color. Is expensive. It is very (laughs) expensive, and paint is cheap. I heard a great quote once, which was, Color applied without theory is a clown. Mm. And I think that we have a lot of clown buildings in Denver that are coming up right now where the developer is saying, let's make this bright and let's make this vibrant. But there's no thought applied. I think that the, the biggest trend I would like to see be applied to development, architecture, urban planning as a whole is that money is put aside for design, whether it's low-income housing or whether it's somebody's, you know, multi-million dollar private home, that Mm -hmm. design is thought about and design is democratized in a way that if if I am a lower-income person, I do not have to live in a flavorless box that is unthought about and, you know, doesn't provide not just aesthetically for me but also, you know, culturally, emotionally, that doesn't provide, you know, what a home should provide. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's four walls and a ceiling and a toilet, but I think that, you know, good design brings so much more than that. It's a space that is is safe and it feels good and that you want to be in and that you're comfortable in. And, you know, design can bridge a lot of those gaps. And when you look at the hard costs of development, Design is a fraction of it. You're talking about, you know, just a few percent of an overall budget. And, you know, to expand that a few more percent to say, you know, we we value the people that will be in here more than the dollars we make 
from this project is is really you know what what needs to happen. And with the conversations you're having today with with client current clients, you know potential clients or just you know colleagues in the industry, you know it could be the urban industry, it could be the the design industry. How hard is that conversation today? You know, how hard is it to convince someone that the extra 3% is worth it? Has that changed over the years? Is that conversation becoming any easier? In hot markets, yes. It's easier to have that conversation in Denver than it was five years ago. And it's still easier to have that conversation in LA. I, I think that, you know, places that competition is tight, people really want to do things to get outside of the competition. You know, in Denver, as the market tightens and then levels and then tightens again, you know, there's there's a lot of competition between developers. And I think that people are starting to see design as a real differentiator that can kind of be this X factor for your project that will allow you to interface with potential guests, customers, and the general public at a higher level and to really speak to them and to keep them with your brand longer. Yeah. And people are really starting to to value that in some markets. I think there are a lot of places that kind of need to catch up on that. And I think that, you know, once again that gets back to the idea of getting past warehousing humans, getting past kind of cheap spaces of interaction. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I I, I kind of want to wrap up today with asking you a couple questions around who else is doing work that you're enjoying. So kind of the 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 catch-all question that we're that we're asking everyone on the podcast is who is doing inspiring work? Who's doing groundbreaking work? And kind of why? Who comes to mind for you? So besides the couple of uh groups that I worked with that I have kind of named earlier, uh, Zeppelin and Dina and uh, Karen Haley and some other kind of folks in town, Winter Session, which is kind of a bad company, but like we'll, we'll keep it more to development. Yeah. So I think, you know, we kind of love this idea of, of interaction design. And I think a lot of people come from graphic design and go to either a uh, place of kind of digital sphere or they go to more of a traditional full service marketing agency type feel. We kind of went the other way into having design start to apply itself to physical materials and physical space. And I think that the now defunct, but uh, the old partners are doing still some very creative stuff, Ugly Cute from Stockholm mm-hmm. uh, really did some amazing space creation, industrial design, and just some really thoughtful design kind of in the Nordic world. And then Family Architecture out in New York was another really wholly conceived group. They did some of the initial off-white storefronts, which are just, you know, you can't afford anything inside, but the spaces (laughs) are conceptually beautiful. I think, you know, in a local space, Trace Birds is kind of a design build firm out here, and they, they do some really thoughtful design in this market, really cool uses of materials, and everything they do is well-researched and thought out. The other group I would call out on, on a matter of kind of uh, principle and just culturally is a Radiant Architecture out here who designed the uh, tiny home project to house the homeless. They worked with school children to design some parks, and they really helped to like democratize the design process and believe in 
designed for all, whether you are homeless or wealthy, and they're they're kind of a not-for-profit architecture group. It's it's really unique what they're doing, and they're kind of just starting to get some of the press that they deserve. But I think that it's a really noble and altruistic application of design and architecture, and I think we could have more of that in the uh, in the world for sure. Absolutely. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Tell the world where they can find you. Oh, uh, you can find us Wunderwerks, uh, <laughs> iHeartWonderworks.com. That's U-N-D-E-R-W-E-R-K-Z, German spelling, because of course. Because of course. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we exist in Denver, and uh, check us out through some of our fun public-facing uh, design events, our uh me and my wife's travel magazine called Wavezine. And yeah, find us on the Instagram, wonder underscore works. But yeah, thanks a ton for having us. Yeah, absolutely. It's been an enlightening conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me, John. And I'll see you next time. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can subscribe through your favorite outlets, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>